And welcome to the podcast. I'm Joel Rollins, and this is The Week on Rave Radio. Well, this week I've been working on a new series of columns for Rave, uh, for rental and staging specifically, about how user tastes in AV have changed and what changes them. In particular, I've been looking at the definition of video quality for our clients. So I asked Jim Smith of Polycom, who is always right at the cutting edge of this idea, to join us to discuss what influences our clients and what will influence their tastes in AV in the future. Anyway, we'll be doing that in just a few minutes. In the meantime, let me remind you that the week is brought to you by HyperSign, who make a truly innovative product line for digital signage. You can find out more about their unique signage solution at www.hypersign.com. The week is also brought to you by Atlas Sound, and Atlas makes a huge variety of audio products to fill our needs in the AV industry. And more about them can be found at www.atlassound.com. Something else I'd love to remind you of, while you're here on Rave Radio, take a listen to our other podcasts, like the Green AV Podcast, the Wavecast from Women in AV, and Gary Kay's Almost Daily Rants and Raves. You can find them all at www.ravepubs.com and on iTunes. Here, on the week... We try to address the most important items we see in AV News for the Week, and we bring you a range of guests for a conversation about subjects important to our industry. And so, without further ado, let's talk about what's going on in the world of AV News this week. Over the next 10 days, Barco will introduce a series of new products for its corporate audiovisual line, including three new projector families, the Present line, the Collaborate line, and the Impress line. Sounds like three good ideas to me. The Present line is a series of one-chip DLP projectors ranging in brightness from 5,000 lumens to 10,000 lumens. They are designed for boardrooms, houses of worship, large venues, or meeting rooms. The Collaborate line of meeting room and large venue projectors is focused on making collaborative meetings easier. With extra-wide resolutions, Barco designed them as an alternative to a traditional setup with a dual-channel blend. The Impress projector, Barco's final introduction, is a three-chip DLP projector with a variety of interchangeable lens options offering installers flexibility. You can certainly find out more about them as the products are released here on Rave Pubs. Also in the news, DTools, a leader in system integration software, has announced the upcoming launch of DT Connect, a feature that provides integrated analytics and communication systems for manufacturers and the DTools user community from within the DTools system integrator software environment. DT Connect enables timely pricing updates, special offers, and other information relative to users of DTools award-winning 6 2013 platform. DTools will unveil DT Connect during Cedia Expo 2013, being held September 26th through 28th, at the Colorado Convention Center in Denver, Colorado. Also, TCOM is introducing the Prime Lectern. Integrated with AV control, HDMI, and VGA signal routing, a 19-inch touchscreen, microphone, DVD player, speakers, and shelves for additional AV gear, the Prime is meant to be used in classrooms and auditoriums in K-12 and higher education facilities. 
This sturdy, fully loaded lectern is aimed at the entry-level market. TCOM says the TPP-11W is the lowest-cost podium it has ever designed. Atomus is de debuting the Atomus Spider, a field monitor and recorder color calibration tool. Developed in partnership with New Jersey-based Datacolor, the Atomus Spider gives the Samurai Blade one-button color calibration normally found only on high-end monitors. With Spider, the Samurai Blade gains the ability to accurately calibrate to the SMPTE REC709 color space with a D65 white point. Spider can be used as a standard calibration unit for any monitor or computer when used with data color software. There's some names in the AV news this week, too. In Old Lyme, Connecticut, audio specialist Sennheiser originally launched its mentorship program back in 2009 to help encourage the next generation of audio engineers to enter the exciting field of televised sports. The company has since built collaborations among a variety of higher education institutions and top professional broadcast networks such as HBO and Fox Sports. For its most recent mentorship program, Sennheiser selected students Eric Haikikila from Emerson College and Brad Bacon from the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences near Phoenix. Each student was able to shadow A1 and A2 professionals during HBO sports broadcast of a light heavyweight title bout between Chad Dawson and Adonis Stevenson and the NASCAR's Coca-Cola 600 race by Fox Sports, respectively. This is an incredible mentorship program, folks, to get people out that close to the events that important, I think is great. Also in the news, Core Brands, a subsidiary of Nortech Incorporated, has announced the appointment of seasoned tech industry executive Joe Roberts to the position of VP of Products and Marketing. Mr. Roberts brings nearly 20 years of experience in building award-winning consumer technology products, marketing across global channels, and managing a range of business disciplines. Core Brands combines the product and marketing strengths of 10 iconic audio, power management, and control brands into a single business unit that includes Aton, Blue Bolt, Elan, Furman, Niles, Panamax, Proficient, Speakercraft, Sunfire, and Zantec brands. Also, Middle Atlantic has named Tim Trost as Director of Physical Infrastructure Products, an integral part of the company's product development team. In this newly created position, Trost will oversee the development of Middle Atlantic rack and enclosure products and related options. He will drive innovation for a range of new installation products and services that help save time and labor costs for integrators in all market segments, something we're certainly in favor of. Anyway, about these and other items, you can find out more as news breaks on this and many other stories at www.ravepubs.com. And now, let's go on with our interview for the week. Folks, as I mentioned near the top of the show, uh, with me today is Jim Smith, who read my column this month, and it's a subject that uh, Jim and I have talked about a lot in the past. Jim, thanks for being with us again. My pleasure, Joel. Anytime. Do you think what we're seeing in terms of the customer being influenced by the quality of web video is a permanent change? Ooh, you know, when you, when you think about it, um, we've got two divergent uh, things happening at the same time in the industry. We've got uh, low-quality video being um, 
propagated through web applications like YouTube and, and personal communication tools like Skype. And then we've got ultra high definition video getting put into displays and home theater applications where there's just no way to make the two combine in a nice manner. You know, so you've got this 4K home display and you're going to run a low resolution video engine onto that 4K display. Kind of doesn't work out. It's a garbage in, garbage out thing. Oh my goodness. And the other thing that, that, that gets to me is not just the technical video quality that's available, because frankly you can actually do some good stuff. It's that the availability of it to everybody has lowered production values incredibly. Well, yeah, yeah, that, and that's that's the other piece. You look at some of the the applications that are available on personal devices, and there's some really clever technology that's been embedded into, uh, you know, phone apps that let people do highlighting, marking, uh, editing of, of videos, and and uh, embedding other things into the videos, and you kind of um, mushing the production value into this into this low-end world um, and and for the sake of convenience more than anything else yeah, I, I agree and yet the other thing is to me that they don't seem to notice it well you know everybody's got their own threshold of tolerance for what they can stand and depending on the device they're they're participating with that threshold of tolerance may vary you know, so looking at a, a video on a, uh, a telephone-like device um, may allow people to look at things with much lower production value, much lower quality than looking at it on a home theater device. Absolutely. Now, you've been at the forefront of video communications, well, as long as I've known you, 25 plus years. What, how do you see this? What, what does a company like Polycom, at the very leading edge of this, do in order to fight that, or do you? Well, sometimes you, you do have to accommodate the, the tide. You know, so, so look at, at where we started in video conferencing world. You know, in, the, in the early 90s, we were limited to 352 by 288 pixels. And people thought, this is great video. It's compressed, but it's great video. So for what you got, or what you were expecting, um, you got reasonable uh, quality for pro business productivity. Uh, then we upgraded that to FORSIF or standard definition video. And so 700 by, by 500 approximately. Uh, and people went, wow, this is really great. This is broadcast quality video. And then that moved up another notch to high def world and 1280 by 720 and then that wasn't enough and then it kicked up to 1920 by 1080 and people are saying yeah you know that's still not I, I, I want 4k and and the the industry starts marching along and chip manufacturers create parts that will will support that kind of resolution and people create these compression engines that will stuff that amount of resolution down a standard communication pipe. And then people start saying, yeah, but I want to do this from my I thing, I whatever, uh, Android whatever. I want to do it from an airport on a Wi-Fi network. Uh, let me do that. 
okay so now we kick the, the quality back several notches and do things to impersonate higher quality in the in the trunking so we we put in frame doubling or frame quadrupling or uh, line doubling or line quadrupling or other things to to trick up the image and try to avoid the quality compromise and the end result is this homogenization of the technologies to the point where people aren't quite sure what's going on and, and what's actually happening. But the one thing we do know is that the higher the quality you expect, the more processing power is required. And along with that, the more bandwidth is required in that particular event. So some manufacturers in this industry have started looking at ways to kind of to kind of trick out the environment and move the the burden to other pieces uh, we've we've got a good example of that in a, a technology that's coming to the forefront right now called SVC or scalable video coder and what that tends to do is that tends to push the the processing burden from the endpoint into the network so we no longer try to create an image with one pipe, one connection, one path to an endpoint. We now look at creating multiple paths with multiple resolutions and multiple capabilities and then letting the endpoints decide how they want to communicate. So this kind of eliminates the problem of I've got a high quality endpoint at one place, I've got a low quality endpoint at a different place, now we're going to communicate and everybody gets relegated to the lowest common denominator. No, in SVC they get to pick the quality that they want and the network pays the price of this burden. The network has to carry all the traffic of all the different resolutions all the time. So, you know, we, we've we've been playing a few games and it's not Polycom specifically, it's the industry in general uh, to try to accommodate these disparate needs. Well, you know, let me ask you then if SVC answers what I get as the first two questions in, in, in selling a video conferencing system. The first one is, is this full HD and is it scalable to 4K? And the second one is, can you Skype into it? Ah. And, and the problem with that is, isn't that mutually exclusive? Yeah, well, let's, let's start with the Skype side first, um, because that's, that's a really good discussion. Skype is, you know, a very clever system that isolates the user from the actual technology. So, you know, we're, we're in a Skype audio call right now, and we could escalate this to a Skype video call, but the technology behind the Skype, the, the uh, compression, decompression engines, so to speak, we don't really care what they are. You know, they, they just work. And they're part of the Skype hosted model where this, the Skype server that you and I both logged into in order to prepare for this uh, connection, it pushed out a, uh, a compression engine to us and said, here, use this when you place your call. And the user doesn't need to care. All they do is click on the button, the thing happens, the event goes on, they communicate, life is good. So Skype did a very nice thing. They took the technology and hid it from the users. Now, this also means that Skype could at some point, by choice, incorporate a mechanism in that same technology to become compatible 
with everything else that's already out there. So you can say, all right, well, Skype is an open network standard. It allows all sorts of communication, but only allows it between Skype users. And you want to communicate with other folks in a business environment, you have to accommodate Skype. Or do you? You know, does Skype need to accommodate the business community? You know, it could be said either way. Now, look at some of the network issues that occur in Skype. In a Skype world, we have uh, public internet that's part of the equation. As part of the public internet, we've got something that's part of Skype called Open Relay. And Open Relay is a node on the network where Skype traffic comes in and Skype traffic gets forwarded to other users. In that connection from the Skype endpoint to the Open Relay node, there can be security put in place. No problem. My call is secure at that level. As soon as I go into the open relay, all the traffic that is getting forwarded is unencrypted and sent open view. Anybody can look at it who has access to that network node. And this is a potential security issue that plays into the equation of, of quality, but isn't one of those top line equations. It's one of the subtitles. And when we think about it, if you try to use Skype as part of a open telemedicine network, uh, you would be in direct violation of patient confidentiality just by virtue of an unknown open relay out in the public network. Absolutely. I mean, and in my market, you know, I live in Fairfield County. It's high-end financial companies. Again. And again, the encryption of that data is – and yet they still want Skype. I mean, I find this really interesting in right. that – they, they want it for convenience. You and I, sitting here today, I'm in a room with both a Polycom and a Cisco system in it, and I know the kind of hardware you have. We would have the choice between us of virtually any level of conferencing we wanted to do. But this was a simple audio call, and right. it didn't have to be encrypted, and there's easy software for recording, so we made a Skype call. Yes. So, so it has, to some extent, I mean, it has a validity even oh, yeah? in business, and I think that maybe they've, they've brought about an awareness that it can be that easy. And one of the things I've got to say, commenting as, as a dealer and an outsider, that I've seen both Cisco and Polycom doing is an attempt to take a much higher level of communication, but make it as friendly. I mean, to, to Cisco, that's Jabber. To you, that's Cloud Access. You know, mm -hmm. th there's... To make it as friendly to do, but more secure and more workable with real systems. Is that what's pushed that? Absolutely. Um, there, there's no question that the development of these tools and advanced types of, of personal applications has come from the Skype model of simplicity of use. Uh, and one of the things that, that the companies are doing is they're trying to leverage that simple user interface and then disguise the uh, more intense technology behind that. So let's, let's take an example of Cloud Access. Um, the Cloud Access environment will launch a call. Uh, it'll launch an instant message first uh, as an invitation to a Skype user, for instance. And that shows up in their Skype instant message client. They click on the link that's embedded in that instant message. And instead of opening a Skype channel, 
it opens a standard based video conference channel back through a secure network environment and gives the impression to the user that they're in a Skype call, but they're not. They're in a traditional video conference call now with all the security and attendant capabilities of that environment and also the full cross compatibility of that environment. So, you know, you're, you're right, the, the user wants it to be simple. They don't want to have to worry about the details. And it's going to be incumbent on the manufacturers to ensure that the users don't have to worry about the details. Are, I guess speaking as somebody with, with you know, I'm, I'm called on by clients to record conferences and to produce conferences all the time. Yep. Does this, is there going to be a way then to, to, to change the standard? Because what's happening now is, you're right, they, they click into it as if they're going into a Skype. They have the availability of much higher quality. The question is, will they use it? I mean, is there any way that we can influence them to maintain a higher standard of communication? Are there going to be, or, or are, we, are we fighting the tide there? Well, look at it this way. In the communication world, there's a number of different levels of access that can be provided. So let's look at the basis of the compression technology for a second. In the Skype world, you've got a video coder that is proprietary in, in, the, in the Skype land and has a, a level of, um, let's call it bookmarking, that is pretty, pretty light. It, does, it doesn't have a lot of capability to, to be managed in any significant way. In the H.264 world, there's actually technology embedded in the compression algorithm to allow hot meta tagging to take place during a conference. So if you wanted to, you could actually label and link the information during the course of a conference or during the course of an edit session so that the, the hot links, the words that were associated with a particular topic could be found and then keyed in that recording. And then you could search on those later. So take this out to the notion of um, the ephemeral big data. You know, we've got this this world of, of research and everybody's going to go data mining in this public forum of, of information. And if you've got video streams, if you've got data that has tags associated with it, that can then be logged and registered against some sort of searching environment, you've now got a possibility of creating a chapter by chapter bookmarked, I want to see every time when somebody says um, inadvertent inbound call and you want to link it to a courtroom event and they see five different videos pop up of inadvertent courtroom inbound calling because somebody happened to show a, a, a Skype ID on screen. You know, so, so these are possibilities that exist inherently in the standards world in the 264 world that don't really exist in the Skype world, but they could, it's just that it's not there. So if we can create the compelling need, the compelling application that takes advantage of these things, people will migrate without actually caring why they're going there. You know, they, they won't need to care, well, I'm, I only want to use Skype because it's so easy. The other stuff will be easy too. 
they'll just have more reason to go there. Let's talk for just a second about the security issues inherent uh -huh. in in the public. I mean, it's not just Skype. There's half a dozen others out there now, too, although Skype by far the prevalent one. Yeah. What, what really are the vulnerabilities? The, the, the vulnerabilities seem to be gathered around this notion of open relay. And it's, it's just the way the public network in the internet world tends to work. Um, you've, you've got a, a device that's somewhere out in the public domain and it happens to take traffic from uh, network area A and move it into network area B. And when it does that, the internal machinations of that device tend to decode the information, unencrypt it, put it into a relay form, re-encrypt it and send it on its way. Um, and that kind of, it simplifies the internal architecture of the device, but sure. does, does cause the issue of if somebody has access to that relay, they now have access to your data. And, and this becomes that, that primary security breach kind of thing. Um, the, the other possibility is of interception and, you know, where's your encryption lying? You know, we, we look at, at some of the encryption techniques that are used in, in the standards world, and it's AES 256 bit, AES 512 bit, 1024 bit, all these all these fairly high potency uh, kinds of encryption that are certified at different levels of, of communication to ensure personal privacy. And then in the personal communication world, we've got a different need. We just want to feel like we're private. You know, we don't necessarily expect that anybody's going to be able to intercept and, and process our cell phone calls, um, but it is possible. You know, there, there are times when if you're in that, that uh, CDMA kind of environment, you hear another person on your call and you wonder, well, wait a minute, I'm, I've got a secure channel here. I, I shouldn't have to do it. Well, it, it just happens. Well, let me ask you this, a, a, a broad question about Skype. I, I live in a condo building yep. where about half the condos are actually rented by university students from the owners. And there are at least 20 wireless networks in, in my building. I'm on one right now. In fact, I look at them and half of them are still, you know, I, I, I bet you anything that the password is admin and set up as Netgear. And I mean, nobody, as a matter of fact, there, there are five routers named Netgear here mm -hmm. in, in my building is so since I'm talking from from my laptop in my office right now to my airport which is a couple rooms away that what's vulnerable about that I know I have half a dozen wireless scanners that will pick up unencrypted wireless streams could right. someone actually listen to this call um, yeah in fact I'll, I'll let you in on a, on a little bit of secret um, if you had a network sniffing tool um, it could give you um, an ability to reconstruct the call word by word. Really? Yeah. Um, so it's it's not something you want to do on a regular basis without end-to-end -end encryption. You know, if you're concerned about privacy, um, and and you know the the uh, uh, Wireshark traces 
you know, are the tool that you could use to get access to all of the information that's exchanged in a conference. Um, and it's not a huge amount of information. Um, and then reconstructing it, all that needs is to play that Wireshark packet capture back through a decoder. Right. And then it's going to be there. Right. That, that, see, that, that's where... Now, how is that different with the commercial applications? Ah, the commercial applications are, in, are encrypted right at the endpoint itself. So there's, there's no open communication at all anywhere in the network. Um, you never have to worry about, okay, it's going to go from my device to the host device, and then it's going to be encrypted and go on from there. Um, it's always encrypted from the very endpoint. Ah, well, that certainly would make, and of course, because it's private bandwidth and we have control of the servers that are involved, we can maintain that encryption all the way through. Where yeah. I, I can see where that would be very, very difficult to do with a wide access system like a Skype. Oh, exactly. exactly. You know, I mean, to be able to follow the number of interchanges that might have to be made and maintain encryption would add such a level of, of overhead that I, I can't imagine being able to do it, or at least not do it and make it free like it is here. Well, that, that's the thing, you know, the, the, there's a cost profile that gets associated with any en enhancement of technology. Uh, um, is what you're saying we get what we pay for? Ooh, it could be. <laughs> Jim, where, where do you think this all shakes out? Over the next, you know, we, we can't have very long crystal balls, but over the next three, four years, what, what What's going to happen in that desktop software environment? Um, we're going to see, you know, I, I, there's, there's a couple of schools of thought on that. Um, one is that you give people a free application with basic functionality, and then for the enhanced functionality, you have them uh, consume a license in some sort of monetized environment. You know, so that, that's, that's one approach. Um, another approach is to say, okay, we're going to give you a low-cost tool that will have all the capabilities, and because it's so low-cost, you're not even going to care about the, that fee, and you'll just pay for it willingly. And, and you know, these, these different approaches are being looked at, reviewed, painstakingly reviewed, and almost being put into business plans of the companies that are involved in communications. I think that there's a lot of cases of that actually being out as trial product. I mean, I'm thinking about, for instance, LifeSize's ClearSea service, mm -hmm. where you can, you know, you can get it free, but the minute you want to start doing things with it, you start to add on licenses. Right. Right. I, I think Jabber has a version like that also. But, you know, the the, uh, the key to cloud access or one of the, the really neat parts about it is that it so fully disguises the technology environment from the user interface. They don't have to know how to place a call. They don't have to know how to route a call. They don't have to know about gateways or gatekeepers or SIP registrars or anything else. They just click on a link it pushes a, a client into their web browser and it works. And, and to me, that's kind of where we have to head as an industry, where the people don't have to worry about how the technology accommodates their communication channel. It just happens. Absolutely. There's only one request that I would make as, as you folks work on developing those things. Leave something in it for me to sell. Oh, well, 
you know, there's I saw this really interesting video today that was put out by a um, a company that uh, does universal arbitration in a bridging kind of environment, and I'll let you guess who that company is. Um, one of the things that they did was they were trying to spoof the uh, perception of difficulty of use of traditional conferencing technology. So they had all this conferencing technology out on a, on a table and they wanted to launch a call, but the call wouldn't launch and the IT folks were pulling their hair out and ripping wires out of the wall. So one of the people in the meeting just goes to their um, touch device, their personal communication device, hits an icon on the screen and a call launches. But where does the call launch? It didn't launch on their personal communication device, it launched on the big screen in the front of the room with the camera at the front of the room. So this is kind of interesting because there's going to be a need to incorporate all these technologies into an environment that people want to work in, but without them needing to care about how it happened. So you'll have lots to do, Joel. Okay, good. Okay, because it, that does worry me just a little bit as this uh, future approaches. Yes, indeed. However, it's getting to be a lot of fun. Uh, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> Jim, thanks a bunch for being with us. Thanks, Joel. Anytime, my pleasure. I just enjoy talking to you about these things. Well, that's all we have time for. But join us again next episode here on The Week on Rave Radio. And don't forget... There's lots more to listen to in our other podcasts on Rave Radio. Check them all out at www.ravepubs.com and on iTunes. And thanks once again to our sponsors, Hypersign and Atlas Sound, for helping us bring you this show. Check out some great stuff at www.hypersign.com and www.atlassound.com. And thanks once again for listening to Rave Radio. I'm Joel Rollins, wishing you a great week ahead.